0: Just about in the middle of the Bible, one of the writers asked this question, who can straighten what he has bent? And in that passage, what he's asking is, who can fix this problem? And that's what we're going to look at today. And I brought something with me. I realize it's too big to leave up here, but this is a mirror and I'd like to leave it up there because if there's ever a sermon I've preached that I need to hear, it's this one. And for I've actually been working on this passage for several weeks, or this message for several weeks. And nearly every day, my wife has to remind me, <laughs> David, listen to your own sermon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your steadfast, loving kindness. That in a world that's in a mess, you are doing something about it. And we, like Habakkuk, are often completely bumfuzzled at why you're doing things the way you're doing them. But Lord, you made the universe. We can trust you that you know what you're doing. Lord, help us to hear what you want us to know about your plan and respond the way you want us to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at how God answers this question, who can straighten what he has bent. The writer that wrote this, it's a rhetorical question, and he expects people to give a particular answer, probably not the one you would expect to give. But, uh, but before we can answer that, we have to... Uh, We have to ask the question, we have to understand the question basically is, what is it that's bent? Who bent it? And what does it mean that it's bent? And what we're going to do is look in Genesis 3 to answer these three questions. And this is very familiar. We're just going to march through the Bible and look at passages that are very familiar, but to just anchor ourselves in what God says about this. You'll recall... Um, that God has described His creation of the world and making man and woman and putting them in the world and His declaration that it was good. But then in the second page, we're in page two of a 1,400-page Bible, people sin. And we see that what happened, you know what happened in the Garden of Eden, that Satan came... And deceived Eve and she sinned. And we need to be real clear now about what Eve did. We talked about this a few weeks ago. About what the sin was that Eve did. She was not deceived in the sense that she misunderstood what God had said. She was perfectly clear on what God had said. She just didn't believe it. She chose to believe the lie And she chose to decide for herself what was right or wrong because she didn't believe what God said about what was right or wrong. And as a consequence of that, we come to uh, what God does in the middle of chapter 3, in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, "...because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you'll go, and dust you'll eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed." He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you'll bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he'll rule over you. And then to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, curse it as a ground because of you. And toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As one prophet I had once said, God is telling Adam, you're going to eat from the ground. He actually says you're going to eat dirt, but eventually the dirt is going to eat you. And what we see what's going on here is we need to recall God had told them that in the day that they disobeyed, the day that they sinned, that they would die. But in fact, we see what God does is he drives them out of the garden and makes life hard. And God establishes a pattern here that he's going to do throughout all of Scripture is often when people rebel against him rather than immediately giving him a sentence of death, What he does, he says, all right, you want to make your own decisions and live apart from my care and guidance? I'm going to let you do it. See how it works out. And how it works out is it's a train wreck. And he makes life hard to wake people up to the fact that living apart from God's provision and guidance is hard. Now, you might or might not recognize all of that just from that passage But God spells it all out, and we're going to read in Deuteronomy 8. There are two or three passages in Scripture that are just turning points for me. Romans 5 is one, and I remember early in my Christian life, this chapter, God's Word here just clarified so much of how God thinks. And what we're going to see here is how God works in our lives through difficulties that we face that he allows or even brings into our life. The setting here, recall all the world had gone down the tubes, uh, and God at the Tower of Babel scatters people in all the nations, uh, speaking foreign uh, languages that they can't understand each other, so they can't cooperate in their rebellion against God. It's why he did that, again, making life frustrating for them. And God calls out a guy named Abram and says, Abram, okay, you leave your nation of unbelieving sun worshipers. And you come out, and I'm going to make your family a nation that will be my people. And I'm going to use you to bless all those other nations. But first, your descendants are going to end up slaves in a foreign country for 400 years. Well, that happens, of course. Family all ends up in Egypt. 400 years later, God says, okay, now it's time. It's time I'm going to take my people and give them to the land that I promised to your forefather Abraham. And he calls Moses to lead them out. And you'll remember the story. Moses goes and he leads the people out of slavery in Egypt. They go out in the wilderness. they kicking and screaming and complaining the whole way, begging to go back to being slaves in Egypt because they don't want what God wants to give them. They end up wandering around for 40 years and they're finally across the river and they're about to go in. And in Deuteronomy... Moses is recounting to the people what they've been through. How did we get here? And what needs to happen next? Moses tells the people, chapter 8, verse 1, All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply... And go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So why were they wandering in the wilderness, which was, it was hard. It was difficult. Why did he do it? He just tells us. To train them in humility, to humble them, and also to test them, what was in the heart. Now, he explains what that means Uh, in 3 through 10. What does it mean to train us in humility? Verse 3, it says that God humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand. That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? We'll see that again in a little while. In other words, to teach you you're dependent on the Lord. Verse 4, your clothing didn't wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you're to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. When we say discipline, we just think about spanking to punish because we're mad that our kids just (laughs) annoyed us. He's talking about training, right? Think training. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you'll eat food without scarcity, in which you'll not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for what? For the good land which he has given you. Training in humility. Humility doesn't mean, oh, shucks, I don't know. That's how we use it. In the Bible, humility usually means an attitude of dependence and recognizing a need. Uh, for our help. But now he goes about the testing, verse 11. Beware that you don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud And you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know. That he might humble you and that he might test you. To do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. God didn't plant that vineyard. I did when I was out there plowing and sweating. I didn't see God out there helping me plow. That was actually a line out of a movie. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was a movie long ago. I can't remember the movie, but I so remember the scene. His family, there was a farmer and they were all sitting at the table to pray and his wife was getting him to pray. And thank God for the food. And he said, why? He wasn't out there helping me plow. But you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. That he may confirm his covenant. Which he swore to your fathers. As it is to this day. It shall come if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish. So what we see is when you see the words humility and pride in the Scripture, you don't so much want to think the way we use them in English. Think about biblically the way it's used. That humility is acknowledging and accepting dependence in pride is asserting and living with this attitude of self sufficiency. That's what Eve did. I don't need God to tell me what's right or wrong. I can figure it out for myself. And God wardens the people for this. We see God using hardship in our lives to train us here. He's talking about the nation Israel. That, yeah, they were hungry in the wilderness. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, it was scary. They were being chased by an army and they were defenseless. But he said, I was training you. <clears throat> You're probably familiar with the story of Hezekiah. Uh, what happened late in Hezekiah's life is so important. It's recorded in three places. Isaiah, uh, uh, Keith recently covered this in the Isaiah class. It's covered in 2 Kings 20 and 2 Chronicles 32 and Isaiah 39. Hezekiah had a pretty good run through his life, depending on the Lord, humility, calling out to the Lord for help, obeying Him, responding. But what happened later in his life? In uh, 2 Chronicles 32, it says in verse 25, But he, uh, that was when uh, Hezekiah... Sorry, verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. And we find out how that happened is later on. Down in verse 31, it says that when Babylon sent some envoys because they had heard that King Hezekiah had gotten well, and they had heard about the sign. And they came to ask, it says specifically in the text, they came to ask him about the sign. And what did Hezekiah do? He showed him the gold. And it says in the text, when Hezekiah gets confronted about it, he doesn't even say, well, I showed him God's gold in the temple. He says, I showed him my gold. Um, I didn't read this line. In the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, God left Hezekiah alone to test him to see what was in his heart. And this is what he was looking for. It's a humble attitude or prideful attitude. The ultimate example of this, of course, is the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. you remember how that goes. What does the Pharisee say? Boy, I am glad I'm not like Jack and Mike. I pay tithes, I go to church, I do my stuff. But then Jesus talks about the tax collector. Um, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. God is looking as we face hardships in life and difficulties in life. God is training us in humility and he's testing our hearts to see what's in there. But I think it's really neat back there in uh, in Deuteronomy. Did you catch what he says? He says um, that I testing you that it may do good for you in the end. Testing you that it may do good for you in the end. Humbling you. First person I thought about with this is uh, Paul in Second Corinthians. Um, in Second Corinthians twelve. I've got markers in my Bible. One of them fell out. In 2 Corinthians 12, you'll recall that this is where Paul talks about having a thorn in the flesh. And there's all kinds of debate about what it was. But it doesn't really matter. Um, the point is, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is having to defend his apostleship because it becomes clear a lot of the Corinthians don't think much of Paul. They don't think he's really apostle, an apostle. So he's having to defend himself. And he has described the fact that he was taken into heaven and shown a vision. But it says in verse 7 that because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So what he's saying is God has sent something that was difficult for him to do him good, to keep him from being prideful. And look, he says, verse 8, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. <coughs> okay, i learned my lesson. Okay. Just like your little kids do when they get punished. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <clears throat> and God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So God says, this hardship that I put in your life to train you in humility, you're just going to have to live with it. I'm not going to remove it. And here's the amazing thing. Look at Paul's response. This is incredible. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak. <clears throat> then I'm strong. When you face weakness, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties, will you most gladly be well content in the Lord? Where the mirror comes out. Paul can say when he <clears throat> When God leaves me in the wilderness, I know it's for my good. Yeah, it's hard. But he's training me in humility. And I'm the winner when I trust him. And I can be glad in that. We can think of plenty of contra examples in the scripture. Nearly every page. Think of Jonah. Jonah was not happy with the job he was given. So the Lord gave him some hardships to teach him and to test his heart, didn't he? Jonah was pouting, sitting in the sun, getting more and more aggravated. God gave him shade. And it says Jonah was really happy about it. God took the shade away. And Jonah did not gladly bear with that. Griping and complaining, I'd just soon die. And God was testing. God was asking him, Do you do right to be angry? And he was testing him and training him in humility and eventually getting him to think about those people. That he was happy for, for all these people to be destroyed because Jonah didn't like them. And God wanted to teach him. How do you feel when you're being tested? Are you able to be happy about it? Um I've shared before that, uh, well, I add one more thing. I, 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 my screen went blue for there just a moment. I got it back now. Um, when God is testing us to see when it's, it is in our heart so that it will reveal what's in our heart, who is it being revealed to? Is it because God needs to find out? No, of course, he already knows. What he does it for is to reveal it to us so we can see it, so that we can repent of that and trust the Lord. I've shared this before that when we were in Papua New Guinea, uh, Carrie got sick. She had an uh, abscessed appendix that ruptured, and it's a long story to take an hour to tell. But it ended up taking, it was three weeks before we ended up getting to Australia, and when we finally got to Australia, because uh, there's really not much medical care in Papua New Guinea, and the surgeon was—I can—I can almost hear him word for word telling Carrie, "Well, I think—well, I can't do an Australian accent—but because of your strong constitution and a fair bit of luck, you're still alive." But I got tested in that. <clears throat> Because not only was Carrie sick, but part of the reason it took three weeks is because there were people not doing their job to help us get out of the country. And I reached a point where we were stuck in the national capital and couldn't get on a plane that I remember thinking, I'm not interested in praying because so far God hadn't done his job. Well, as you can see, Carrie did survive. She might not have, but she did. Some weeks later, I was sharing with another missionary when we got back to Papua New Guinea. We were in Australia about a month, finally got back. And I was sharing with one of my brothers, dear, dear brother. And you remember this story he, he shared with me. And he said, brother, it seems like you're really able to trust Carrie with illness. That you really would have been all right if the Lord had taken her home because of illness. But he said, David, do you think God is sovereign over stupid people? And man, God had tested me to reveal one of the areas in my life where I am. It's very difficult for me to trust the Lord. I don't have a problem with appendicitis and tornadoes. I don't have a problem with the natural phenomena. I have a problem trusting God with incompetent people. And my brother, <laughs> his name was Mark, he said, Mark, you know, God is just as in control of incompetent people as he is disease. We need to trust him. That was, what God taught me. How do you and I feel when God tests us, when we're in testing? That brings us to the next passage we're going to look at right in the middle of the bible in ecclesiastes it's a little ecclesiastes is a little thing but it's easy to find because just right in the middle of the book of the bible is psalms and proverbs and ecclesiastes is a little document right after that it's only about 6 pages long and what ecclesiastes talks to us about is how we respond when we face difficult situations in life. How do we respond? And we're just going to skim here. Uh, In Ecclesiastes, just kind of skimming through, you see that the writer goes back and forth having two responses to how difficult life is. On the one hand, he'll talk about all the things that don't work right in life. And he says, I hated life, it was grievous to me, I hated all the fruit of my labor, I completely despaired, every task is painful, even at night my mind doesn't rest. Uh, He goes on, he sees the tears of the oppressed, there's no one to comfort, Um, there's vexation, sickness and anger. But then also he'll turn and he'll say, but you know what? We can have rest and contentment. There's really these two emotional states we can be in. We can either be disturbed and discontent, and you can make a long list in here of all the things he describes that we don't like, or we can be at rest and content. And he goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And what does he say is the basis that we can have rest and content on? Because we know that God is good and in control. You can get lost in Ecclesiastes unless you just think about the writer being a real person. And then it gets a whole lot easier to understand. Because he does much the same thing a lot of the psalmists do. He goes back and forth about five times saying, when I look at life, it looks like nothing works right. It looks like the bad guys are winning, the good guys are losing. You try to make the best decisions you can, and it doesn't work. And he goes on and elaborates on all the things that don't work right in the public sphere, in the private life, in illness, in politics. You know, he doesn't use this, but I was thinking, you know, even in your family, even in your family, how often does it happen? You know, the cousin that is the most dishonest and the biggest deadbeat is the one that gets appointed the executor of grandpa's will. You know, the Ecclesiastes is full of of that kind of stuff. But what he keeps coming back to is he'll catch himself and like the psalmist do, he'll remind himself of who God is and that he is in control. It's amazing, most people when they read Ecclesiastes, all they see is the gloom and doom. Get a colored pencil and mark all the positive affirmations that he makes about God. It is a long list. And when he goes back to that and reminds himself that God is in control and he is good, that we can trust him if he has allowed this to happen, all right, that's God's decision. But I can rest in that. You know, I think there's different things that we can feel despair about. And the things that will cause me, I'm just seeing here, vexation, sickness, and anger. The things that may make me lay awake at night and worry and have a knot in my stomach. And I have trouble trusting the Lord. You might look at that and say, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just trust the Lord? Because you don't struggle with that. But you might have something else that I think, why don't you just trust the Lord? But it keeps you awake at night. But, you know, if we have vexation and anger, that's a red flag. We need to ask, why is that? If we don't have rest and peace, if we're laying awake at night all tied up in knots, the question is, why? What's going on in our head that that's our response? And as gets taught in ACBC, and the reason it gets taught is because it's in the Scripture, is our emotional response to our situation is just revealing how we evaluate it, isn't it? Um, Not too long ago, well, not too long ago, it may have been several years now, I don't remember now, I got up one morning and I could smell something burning. And you know, burning electrical wiring really has a distinctive smell. Burning insulation, and I could smell that, and man, I went to panic. I started looking. Started looking all through the house, through closets. I was getting up in the attic. Why was I looking for that? Well, the smell was unpleasant. Yeah, I didn't like the smell. But why did I need to find where that smell was coming from? It's because I didn't want my house to burn down. Because somewhere, something was wrong. And the wire if you don't find what's wrong in the wiring, your house is going to burn down. And what Ecclesiastes is showing is if you're, if you're not able to rest, if you're in total anxiety and despair all the time, you're smelling smoke. You need to find the faulty wiring or your house. is going to burn down. Well, we're going to tie all this together. Because when God tests us to see what's in our heart, really it's the same thing. He is testing us to see how we answer the question. Who can straighten what he has meant? If you feel lost, I think I'll pull all this together where you'll see it's really all one thing. When God tests to see what's in our heart, he's asking us, How are you going to answer the question, who can straighten what he has bent? We're going to look at Isaiah 44. We're actually just going to look at one verse. Some of you have been through this recently with Keith, or most of you have studied and read it before. But in chapter 44 is one of the places where the writer is going on about the folly of idolatry. He's talking about how absurd it is that people would go chop down a tree or just get some rotten wood and they would burn they would burn it to cook their food and make things and then they with their own hands would carve it into a shape and set it up and say my god now that's that's crazy but what i want to get point out is verse 17 he says, but the rest of it, this piece of wood, he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. What are we seeing? We're seeing that the wrong answer to the question, who can straighten what is bent, or who can straighten what he is bent, as we face hardships in life, as we're in the wilderness, (coughs) as we're facing all the things that occur in this fallen world. The question is, who are we going to go to and depend on for relief in this broken, fallen world? And we see in Isaiah 44, that the wrong answer is anyone or anything that I am depending on to overcome all this hardship in life, to provide me with what I want and to protect me from what I don't want. That's really just two sides of the same coin, isn't it? You know, I want to be provided with health and protected from illness. I want to be provided with prosperity and protected from poverty. I want security, not danger. I want respect, not ridicule. I want acceptance, not rejection. I want love, not hate. And depending on whether I think I'm getting those things or someone's cheating me out of it or life's not fair and I start getting anxious and anxiety and laying awake and I start smelling smoke? Who do I go to? Where do I go? The scripture calls this idolatry. The only reason I don't, I sometimes shy away from using the word idolatry is because we just picture You know, we just picture somebody in a deep, dark jungle somewhere bowing down to a carved snake god or something like that. But most of you are familiar that in the Scripture, idolatry is anything that we're turning to, that we think will deliver us, that will provide us with what we want and protect us from what we don't want if it seems like God's not doing His job, if it seems like He's too slow, if He's not giving us what we want. Um, After I made this slide, I'm going to add one thing and I'm going to look at Keith while I say this because I think of him as kind of our resident expert on idolatry, but it's for good reasons. (laughs) He's not thinking that's a compliment. Uh, In the scripture, it doesn't necessarily spell this out, but I think we need to be clear in our mind as we think about our own lives that idolatry is kind of a multifaceted process and it includes several aspects That idolatry and an idol can both be the thing that we actually want or also the means through which we think we can get it. For example, the Israelites carving a wooden statue here, that's their idol. But it's actually the means by which they think that they can get the security and prosperity that they think God is not giving them. And really, both are idols. Is that fair to put all that together? Um, I would say an example, like in counseling your own life, we might say, well, man, uh, Suzanne's idol is money. You don't mind me picking on you, do you? I'm only saying that because it's not. <laughs> Her idol is money, but the question is, why? why do some pe- Why are some people willing to destroy everything in their life to accumulate money? What are they trying to get out of it? Well, probably money is like the carving. It's actually just a means to get something else. What? Maybe a sense of uh, security that maybe they can buy safety, or maybe they want it because if they have enough of it, they just like the comfort of material wealth, or maybe they want it for prestige. Maybe what they really want is to have something to make them look like a winner. So we need to think of idolatry more broadly in terms of not just an object, but also what do we think that's going to get us? It's all just a big ball of wax. And the point that's being made here is, as we often uh, teach here, that we can make an idol of good things. There are a lot of things that the Israelites wanted that not only are good, But, in fact, God told them, I'm going to give it to you. But they got impatient and said, I want it now. I don't want to be in the wilderness. And so they would sin to try to do a workaround and get what they wanted now. So, God sends difficulties in our life to test what's in our heart to find out how we'll answer the question, who can straighten what he has meant. Where do we go to get provided with what I want and protected from what I don't want? So I've asked, who has failed this test? All of us. From Genesis 3 all the way through all the stages of Israel's history and the New Testament, even in Revelation, even in the end times, however you draw the chart with the millennial kingdom and all of that, that even after that, there's a final hurrah where people are turned loose and once again, people on their own rebel against God. And they look somewhere else for relief. Well, there is a right answer to the question who can straighten what he is bent. Most of you, if you're here, you probably know the answer to that question. But there is a right answer. And we're going to look in two places. We're going to look in Matthew 4. We're going to look in Matthew 4 at the temptation of Jesus. And... uh, you you recall, it's very important. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. All right. That ought to have bells and whistles all over it. This is obviously an allusion to Israel being in the wilderness when he led them out of Egypt to the promised land. Jesus is essentially going through the same thing now. Why is he in the wilderness and hungry? Is it because God's plan went wrong? It says he's there because the Spirit led him there. He's there and hungry because his father was. Wanted him there. But Satan comes along and says, you know, this is not any fun. And so three times, Satan tries to coax Jesus to pursue some strategy to get out of this wilderness. To get out of this difficult situation. Now, it may not be immediately obvious if you just read this. But each one of these temptations, if you read Jesus' response, the verse that he quotes, and go back and read the story that he's quoting from, all three times when he responds to Satan with Scripture, he is quoting from what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. All three of these quotes. And And I'm not going to go through the time to elaborate on that. Uh, I actually, I think I did a sermon on that a few years ago or taught Sunday school or something. Maybe I'm thinking about what I taught in Papua New Guinea. But I went over each of these. But I'm just going to put the summary, and you can read this later. And um, it's, or go back and read the Old Testament passages Satan says, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Does that sound familiar? We just read that. If you go back and read the passage with Israel in the wilderness, what's that whole passage is about? Not being proud and trying to just run ahead of God... And try to handle a situation yourself instead of depending on God. Second one, the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He'll command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they'll bear you up so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said, On the other hand, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This one, for a long time... I never really, I'm going to admit, I didn't really understand what was going on there until I just went back and read what Jesus is quoting from. And that event is described in the Old Testament a couple of times, and then there's actually commentary on it in the Psalms. That testing God is basically, God, I will believe you and trust you if you give me what I want. This is the spoiled teenager. If you love me, you let me take the car. That's what was going on. That's what Israel did. We can either ahead of time be very presumptuous, say, I'm just going to do this and God will bless it. More often it's after the fact, isn't it? God let this happen to me. He doesn't love me. The poster child for that, of course, is Naomi. Look what God did to me. He doesn't care. The first one, the not through my effort, self-sufficiency. I forgot to mention. Poster child for this one's Abraham, isn't it? God told Abraham, "I'm going to give you a son," but he just couldn't wait. God's timetable is too slow. I got to make it happen. So we ended up with Ishmael. There's a third one. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Who can straighten what he has bent? When God puts us in hardship to test what's in our heart, if it seems like God's dropping the ball, if God doesn't seem to be doing the job, getting my wife to the hospital, where else can I go? Who else can I look? Apparently, God's not doing his job. So, when God puts us in the temptation and testing in the wilderness to test what's in our heart, who has passed this test? Jesus. No one else has ever passed this test. We just read here how he passed the test in the wilderness. It's clearly a parallel to contrast what israel did failed at in the wilderness jesus didn't this was at the beginning of the ministry but at the end of his ministry jesus was tested again and he passed the test again in the garden turn to matthew 26 Matthew 26, verse 36, it says that Jesus came to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face, prayed, and said, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Temptation for what? What is the temptation? It's to flee the situation God has put them in. It's to not do God's plan. It's to run away because it's hard. He went away again a second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time. Saying the same thing once more. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let's be going. Look. The one who betrayed me, he's coming. While he was still speaking, behold, Jesus, uh, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief magistrates and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave, him, gave them a sign saying, whoever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, Rabbi, kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you've come. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. We ain't going to let this happen. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back. Put it back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he would immediately put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled? Which say that it must happen this way. Are you arresting me like a robber? And then at the end, all the disciples left him. Who passed the test when God tests to see what's in our heart? Only Jesus. Only Jesus has passed the test. We come back to our original question. And the answer, as you can guess, is in Revelation 5. See in Revelation 5 that John has been caught up in heaven and he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, if you're not familiar with Revelation, it may not be immediately apparent what's happening here. And so I want to clarify a couple of things. If you just read Revelation, it's very clear at the end what it means. Um, what this scroll is and what it means to be worthy to open it. Concerning the scroll, the scroll and its seals, it becomes very clear as you read through the book that what this is, it is God's plan to straighten what, is, what has been bent. Not only the frustrations in the life, but to deal with the sin that... Raise the problem in the first place. So, the scroll and the seals is God's plan to fix everything. Now, you might or might not pick that up if you're reading Revelation for the very first time. We're told that John is being shown what's going to happen. But if you just go home this afternoon, Revelation's not that long. You can read it in just a couple of hours. Uh, it's a lot shorter than a John Grisham novel. Um, now, admittedly, there's about 10,000 details in the middle that you're going to go, what? But the main point is as plain as a nose on your face, is that God has a plan to fix what's wrong in this world. And what is meant by worthy to open is that who, not just who can open it and look in it, the point is who is qualified and able to carry out this plan. Now, again, you may not recognize this here, but it's just like any book you read. There's a reason why books have a beginning and a middle and an end. It's because they need the middle and the end. Okay, when it becomes to the end, it's very clear that the person that opens this scroll is the one who brings victory over all that's wrong in the world. So, that's the question. Who can carry out this plan that God has to fix this mess? John's afraid there's not anyone. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. All right. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you immediately know who this is. Okay. The line of Judah that will uh, have a scepter forever. This is a reference from Jacob's blessing uh, on his son Judah, on his descendants. The root of David comes from the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, this is the king that God promised to send, who's going to come and rule with power. We're all on board, but then he throws us a curve. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. Lamb. Do you want your football team's mascot to be the lamb? You use the word mascot? We're the fighting lambs. Sound too impressive. Plus, (laughs) a lamb that's been slain. Verse 8. When this lamb had taken the book, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For, now he's going to give the reason. He's going to give the reason that the lamb is worthy to carry out this plan and fix What's meant, and it is not what we expect (laughs) because you were slain. Because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. And all of heaven worships the lamb that was slain. Did you see that coming? Israel didn't. Early in Jesus' ministry, they're saying, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the root of David? What did they all call him? Son of David. Why? It's the king. Finally. to get some relief. I'm going to kick some people into shape here. What did he do? He went to the cross. That's not what they're expecting. And what did nearly everyone there say? Loser! He is obviously not the Messiah because the Messiah is going to rule and fix everything. This loser got caught and executed. Loser. God says that's why he's worthy. God doesn't do things the way we do them. I usually say it that way. <laughs> but really, it's the other way around, isn't it? Because if I say it that way, it makes sound like we're the standard. He won't give with give the program. But it really is we don't do things the way God does. You know, this is kind of how we view life, isn't it? That's fine for Jesus to die on the cross, but now that He has, let's rule. I've shared before, years ago, I was watching some guy that he called himself a Christian. Motivational speaker. And he was being interviewed on national television by some big-name interviewer person. This was decades ago. And even this non-Christian interviewer, was I mean, he was kind of like blown back. And he said, isn't there something in the Bible about the meek shall inherit the earth? And I can still remember that guy saying, well, the meek may inherit the earth, but they're going to have to work like the devil to get title to it. He was presenting that as Christianity. You know, there was a line, I don't know whether Patton ever actually said it, and I never saw the movie Patton, but you know, in the trailer, Patton supposedly said, Nobody ever won a war by dying for his country. You win a war by making the other so and so die for his country. So nobody ever wanted more by dying for his country. Jesus did. Jesus did. As we feel like we're in the wilderness, and it just feels like, look, God, I'm not wanting... All this sinful stuff. I'm not wanting a harem. I'm not wanting a bunch of cocaine. I want this. These are all good things that you promised. But I want them now. Why can't I have them now? And we start thinking, who can straighten this bent world? This, this world doesn't work right. It doesn't work right in my family. It doesn't work right in the office. It doesn't work right in politics. The guys can't even fix my car. The temptation is gonna to be to do what Israel did. And that is to try to do one of the things that God that Jesus didn't do, to try to handle it ourselves, to try to manipulate God into giving me what I want now, or if God won't give it to me, then I'll find some other way to get what I want. I'll use money, I'll use drugs, I'll use sex, I'll use things that our society applauds I'll use professional success I'll find some way to get what I want and not have to wait for God to give it to me as we look at this question who can straighten what he has bent that's what we're challenged with Keith has been doing a good session uh, going through co- Current cultural things that are going on in politics and how the Christian relates to that. And the only comment that I'm going to make here this evening or this morning is one that to me just stands out reading through Old Testament history. What the prophets are continually telling the Israelites is they keep continually saying, God's not doing his job to give us what we want, the national security we think we want, the prosperity we think we want. And so what they do is they make alliances with the unbelieving nations around them or at least adopt their strategies to try to make it happen now rather than wait for God to give it to them. And I want to say that there's a big section of the church today is doing the same thing. What we want are good things. We want good things in our community. We want marriage honored in our society. Those are all good things. But we're not going to get them by adopting the world's strategies to try to make it happen. God may decide, as He did with Israel, with most of the prophets, He said, you just be patient. I do have a plan, just like with Habakkuk. Habakkuk said, Lord, the land's full of wickedness. And God said, I am doing something. But fasten your seatbelt, because I'm not going to do it the way you want me to. I'm going to do it the way I think is best. And if you trust me, trust me, Habakkuk. Trust me. You'll get through it. The ultimate, of course, is how we handle our own personal sin. The world's got all kinds of solutions to it, mostly of which is just ignore it because they think it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. Or as one public figure said, I don't ask God to forgive me. I just take care of it myself. Just like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. But we need to let God tell us how to handle our sin. And what He wants is for us to confess that and admit our humble dependence on Him for forgiveness. Not in pride saying, I can handle it, but in humility saying, Lord, I can. not I'm like the tax collector. Only you can save me. Say, Lord, that's it. No fancy prayers needed. What's needed is a humble heart. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do so thank you for your forbearance. That ever since Eve sinned in the garden, you've been carrying out a plan to restore all things. A plan that you made from eternity past even before the first sin occurred. Lord, help us be dependent on you. Help us recognize that it is you who are in control and that the difficulties and hardships and all the brokenness of this world that we see is not your plan going wrong, but it is in fact your plan for us being carried out. That it teaches us humility and tests us what's in our heart to reveal to us places where we are not willing to trust you. Lord, guard us and give us insight to recognize when we are adopting the world's methods to try to force what we think may be good solutions and help us to be patient and allow things to go in your timetable. Lord, for those here that have never even uh, trusted you in the first place and put their lives in your hands for salvation, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict their Parts of sin, righteousness, and judgment and a recognition that your son, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain, that he is the one that can restore them and give them the peace they desire. And we pray in his name. Amen.